there's so much power in, in connecting with other people. Even when your stories are different, finding the similarities and being able to be real, you know, having a friend or a community where you can just let it out is so helpful. And having other people do that and me being able to learn from them has been invaluable. This is Katie. And I'm Laura. And welcome to the Radical Resilience Podcast. Hi, Laura. Katie. What's going on? What isn't going on? Everything (laughs) is happening. Everything (gasps) is happening. How'd you sleep last night? Like a rock. I slept so well. It's funny. I actually, so I'm leaving. I'm leaving the West Coast for good in in a couple, on the 30th. So forever. Well, I mean, maybe we'll visit again. But, you know, for this chapter, close, moving on. And I had these dreams at first last night that like the new people, I talk about having a jealousy little thing, but then it became it like the dream was really long, which I don't always have. And I don't usually remember them. But at first it was the new people that moved in and they went like up and down the street and they had all these kids and they had like a stroll and they had balloons and they're like, hi, we're the new people. And they gave everyone a balloon and then like treats and stuff. And I was so jealous that these people were becoming like taking my community. And I was like, oh. I worked so hard for that community. And then it was funny. So like that happened. And then it the dream just went on to like everything I was doing moving forward, which was really cool because it, when it started like that, I think I kind of knew I was in a dream. Like I knew I was sleeping, you know, that that space where you're like, but you can't wake yourself up. And I remember just thinking like, this isn't, that's not fair. That's not how I wanted this to go. Not that I want the new people to come in and not enjoy themselves. But in my dream, I was like stuck. And then I just went and it was so cool to like see the dogs uh, like playing and then just getting, you know, like all the spots to stop as I go across the country, despite, I mean, it's COVID, so it's a little different. And then like seeing Obi and Rebel run into snow and and then packing like a snowball and having Obi think it's like a ball ball and then him catching it in the mouth and just squishing it because he's never done that. And then being like, where's the ball? And so the whole dream went through all of that. And so it was, it was just, it was just beautiful because it was like this, it showed like feelings that I was having. It wasn't like this beautiful, perfect little like dream world. I had jealousy. I had, you know, feelings that aren't like necessarily ones that you're (laughs) super proud of when you have them. But it was, it was really beautiful to just see like what happened as I like released and let go of everything. And so I, I loved it, but, and I slept hard and then I actually woke up happy and like, and I, and I just got up and normally I like lay there and I can feel like the pain in my body and, you know, and all this different stuff. And I didn't, I just got up. Oh, I also had to take medicine to poop last night. <laughs> Yay. Which usually makes for a horrible, horrible night. <laughs> I was like, I didn't know how to react to that. Well, it was so it, it could make for a really good night if it works, because then like I don't have a bowel obstruction and I have relief. It sucks when it doesn't work because then it's like doing something inside, but it's not leaving. And so it's creating a ton of pain. It didn't work, but it also let me sleep. So it wasn't like I didn't, I wasn't up in pain, which may be why my dreams were crazy. Regardless, it was fine. It was great. But it sounds like you really had an, like what I'm hearing is that you, yeah, you had released a lot of stuff. You just like, you like worked through a whole bunch of things in the dream. And that sometimes, like you said, like they are so random and they, you know, it's just like sort of your brain doing weird filing filing things and it comes out in bizarre dreams. And then on the other hand, it's like, sometimes you actually are working through something. And then that sleep time is the space that you just need to do it. And you wake up truly with a new perspective. And I, you know, I, so this was something that I used to teach when I would teach my sleep 
health seminars. And when I was teaching that the body is so much more active at night while you're sleeping than it is when you're up and walking around, because when you're up and walking around, you're processing billions of bits of information at a time, right? Your brain is very, very busy trying to just like keep you standing upright. And you know, your all of your senses are collecting all of this information. And when you sleep, that is your brain's opportunity to actually like do something with all the information that it collected throughout the day, you know, moving memories into long-term from short-term to long-term, um, you know, creating categories of things that it's taken in throughout the day. Um, and actually like making sense of problems and applying problems to old connections that exist or creating new ones. So the concept of like, ah, well, I'll sleep on it. And I'll tell you in the morning is actually a thing that people can do. Like we can actually go to sleep and have our brains do some processing and wake up with new perspective in the morning, just because of the space and the time and the activity that our brain has done while we've been asleep. So I think that's super duper awesome that you had that rest time to like work through all those feelings and could wake up refreshed and ready for the next adventure. Anything. How did you sleep? Um, I slept. I think I slept last night. (laughs) (laughs) I slept in this morning and it's part of it. It's just that I'm still recovering from um, a really crazy bout at the hospital last week um, where I had an infection that got out of control. And I, again, learning things about the body that you never knew before. And so Uh, My lesson that I took away is that as much as I want to think that I should soldier on in the times of COVID and not bother my doctor, um, UTIs are not anything to mess around with. And when they go wrong, they go really wrong. And in my (laughs) case, they went really wrong. And so, uh, but I'm on the mend now after lots of fluids through an IV and antibiotics and all of the above. And I was actually really excited last night to sleep because I actually ate dinner I ate a meal for the first time in five days. My body could tolerate food, which was such a relief. And I didn't have heartburn. I didn't have any pain while I was sleeping because part of what had happened with this infection was I had indigestion and I couldn't keep anything down. And so I like couldn't, I was nauseous for like five days, horrible headache, like crazy fever. And so to be able to like eat a regular meal with like, it was a mini meal. It was like salad and some fish and whatever. But the fact that it didn't bother me at all, was such a relief and that I slept peacefully was really great and slept in and like had that recovery time. So I think that what I'm feeling today is that I'm on the road to recovery. That is the feeling like I've, I'm past it. The rain, I'm onto the, I'm past the rain. I'm onto the rainbows and that feels really nice. So I'm here and I'm happy to be with you and to be with our guest. Your body knew to do all of that and get itself well enough so that you could record the podcast this week. <laughs> That's right. Because <laughs> I was like, oh no, do we need to cancel? And then, because no. it's part of the healing, listening to these stories all the time, listening to everyone we have on always makes me feel better. So I wholeheartedly agree. It is absolutely it, I think it is as valuable to me as it is hopefully to our listeners, like just to sit back and learn. Ugh, it's just delicious. And we have an amazing person for you guys to learn from this week. You will love her. Yes. So when we come back from this quick break, we're going to bring you Maya. Life is always happening nonstop every moment. Things either feel as if they're coming together or they're falling apart. When you're on this wild ride, the falling apart moments can feel like the end of who you are. But with the proper skill set, these circumstances that break us down become the moments that awaken us, build our strength, and cause us to grow. 
To prepare your skill set, I created the Revolutionary Resiliency Course, challenging yourself to go within, dig deeper, make discoveries, and learn while being guided through the exercises in soul work. Together, we will build resilience that is not just radical, but revolutionary. Visit our website, RadicalResiliencePodcast.com to get started. I love you, and I'll see you there. And we are back. Maya Brown Zimmerman is an activist, student, believer in therapy, lover of all things Outlander, and a home improvement television aficionado. She lives with her husband, four kids, and two cats in Ohio. Welcome to the show, Maya. Hi, Maya. Hi. Thanks for having me. So Maya, we open our show um, with our guests the same way. Every guest answers this first question. um, And it is in regard to the title of the podcast, which is radical resilience. And I like to think of it as a little blend of Katie and I, like I bring the radical, which is a reference to a project that we have um, as part of our massive, awesome offerings that people can engage in. And then Katie is the revolutionary resiliency queen. But there's just something really special we thought when we put the word radical and resilience together that for us lands a particular way. Um, But we would love for you to just share with us um, when you hear those two words independently to get, and then, you know, or mush together, what comes up for you in the story of your life or in your perspective on, on how you live your life, radical resilience. When Katie first told me, you know, the name of the podcast and the topics, what came to mind was that some of the things that we do to adapt and to become resilient can be seen as kind of radical because at least for me, there's self-care involved. And a lot of times, um, you know, we kind of get the messages that we should be putting ourselves last. And so this idea that you sometimes need to put yourself first is, can be, can feel really radical. It's so true. I think, especially in American culture for women in particular, Oh, I love it. I can't wait to hear your story. Ah! <laughs> um, to get started, I just want to ask you, so there's, um, we had met, you know, at a conference where I was one of the speakers and stuff, and I know you do a lot for the conference, but as I, it was actually when we were in a hotel room where we connected on like a, a deeper level and you might not even remember. I do. Oh, you do. And when you started sharing stuff about yourself and because I'm so obsessed with and, um, resiliency and just, and just what creates that within us and how do we flex those muscles and how do we guide other people to, you know, just embodying that you in that day, in that, in that hotel room in conversation just blew my mind. And I just remember thinking like, she is so remarkably strong and wondering like what, what happened, like what you shared that day in the room, uh, which I'll allow you to choose what you want to share and, and not share. Um, but what you shared there was such a, a symbol of strength and also such true, like you were such a human because you you were admitting also just the heaviness of stuff and that, you know, like, it's not just like, ah, you know, like I'm a warrior and I'm a badass. How a lot of people will come out like you, you show up so human and I love that. And you, and you always speak your voice and you always speak up for what's right. And I'm just wondering what, like, Were you always like that from a kid on? Did something, you know, did things happen where you had to find something and kind of be that stronger voice? Because I feel like a lot of times we will shy away. And the first thing that we shut down is using our own voice. I think that 
it's been a mix. Genealogy has been a hobby of mine. And so as I looked back within my family history and seeing the characteristics of the women, particularly on my mom's side of the family, and also the generations of, of trauma that have come through, I think there are some characteristics that I was born with that I can see, you know, in my mother and my grandmother. And then a lot of it too came from a lot of therapy, <laughs> which I mean, it's not for everybody, but it worked as it's been really helpful uh, for me. I don't remember everything that we talked about that night, but I uh, do remember talking a little bit about growing up with my father, who was an artist and also dealt with multiple mental illnesses. He eventually lost his life to suicide um, when I was in college. And so um, adapting to a home life that was definitely more complicated than um, some of my peers and then figuring out kind of, you know, where to go from there and trying to figure out who I was, who had I been told that I was, and did I want to be the kind of person that I had been labeled or did I need to figure out a different path and then kind of going from there. So you just spoke up. And so there's something about you that I, that I know, and it's that your four children that Laura mentioned in your intro. And so you had just mentioned like looking back, you know, into your mother and, and your history in that way. There's something I've been fascinated with lately, and it's about like, does DNA raise a child or does a heart and a soul raise a child? Um, and that's one thing that I love about you is your family is is created in a really special and unique way and not just the basic two people go to bed and <laughs> make a baby way. Um, and, and it's something that I've just been like super curious with more. So the fact that you said, you know, some of it might have come the traits like through women in your family. Uh, I'm just curious. First, to maybe explain to us what kind of like how your family is is so special and so unique. And then if you if you see those traits also now in your children, regardless of, you know, of the DNA passed through. Yeah. Um, so I uh, have four children, like I said, my two oldest are boys and um, those kids came to me through biological pregnancy and I have multiple medical diagnoses. And so um, after my second son was born, between you know my, my cardiac and connective tissue issues and then secondary infertility, we knew we weren't gonna have other biological kids. And so we looked into adoption and our two girls came to us through adoption. And we have uh, varying degrees of open adoption with their families, which is beautiful and fascinating you know, complicated because life is complicated. And so it is really been interesting to see the traits that I can see from, you know, their birth parents or grandparents. And then things that I think maybe are, you know, come from, from our household. I hope that I'm passing on the strength and problem solving that I have gotten from the woman who came before me um, onto to my kids. Um, I guess we'll see as they get older. Uh, I know your children and they're phenomenal. I certainly have fun with them. So you've hinted at a couple of things here in the, in the world of your story that really speak to me about a path to resilience. Um, would you, could you tell us your story a little bit, maybe highlighting, you know, where you came from and then certain like key things that you've been working uh, that that maybe tested you or that you've been working on overcoming that helped develop that muscle? 
So I'm the oldest of three. Uh, my mother immigrated to the United States from Brazil with her parents in the 1960s. So we had a multicultural house growing up. Um, my dad is from the, the U.S. It was very creative house. My mother went back to school to get her bachelor's um, when I was 12. And then went on to get uh, three master's degrees and a PhD while she took care of three kids who had medical, we had our individual medical conditions, and then her husband who became really ill while I was in high school. There was a lot of um, emotional abuse in the house as a result of my dad's illness. And I went off to college and tried to kind of figure out who I was and kind of where I was going from there. So like I said, I definitely got uh, a lot of therapy and continue to and uh, met my husband, went to grad school. I have a master's in public health. And then uh, we had kids pretty early on. And our kids, for the most part, have different medical needs. And so then figuring out to how to get them um, the things that they needed and I spent a lot of time doing advocacy work in the chronic illness community um, and in the schools. So it sounds like there is a number of areas where you've had to flex a little bit from, you know, a bit of a, um, like the, like that combination of like power mom, but then a little bit of rocky emotional territory here with dad. And then of course, you know, his, him losing his life to suicide and chronic illnesses of your own, um, from childhood all the way through eventually, you know, affecting your fertility after two children and then kids who are also coping with something similar. One of the, the messages that I got growing up was that, you know, hard things happen to everybody and you just suck it up and you deal with it. And, you know, nobody get, I mean, to set an extent, the message was people don't care about your problems. You just need to deal with it because um, nobody's going to save you but yourself. And in college, my freshman year, I met a girl down the hall named Evgenia, who became one of my best friends. Um, and she also had a lot of uh, medical issues. And we were talking and she'd come back from a doctor's appointment that day that had been not fantastic. And so, you know, I was asking her how she you know, deals with the days that you get a lot of bad news. And she said, well, I take a day to really feel everything. Because if I don't feel all the sadness and frustration and anger, then it's just going to keep coming out at different times. And so I take, take a day or two days and I just feel it all. And then I'm able to kind of pick up, figure out my next steps and move on. And it was the first time I'd heard somebody talk about allowing yourself to feel all of the, the negative um, and giving yourself room and space and permission to process it. And so then I really tried to take that and work it into my own life. And for me, it's been healthier than to just say, you know, I'm going to buckle up and suck it up and... Uh, Having the permission to be able to say, this is really crappy and today is really hard makes it easier for me to be able to figure out where to go from there and to be able to use the tools in my you know, emotional toolbox to get through things. Was your home growing up, um, I know a lot like we have parents all around the same age. So it, with me, my dad was like, well, just put a smile on because like, he was and I learned later in life that he was so scared of me going 
dark or struggling. And he had so much blame for me getting an illness and stuff like that, that he couldn't bear the thought of me getting, you know, a dark thought and stuff. So he just like, uh, you know, lovingly tried to keep me positive, but was so, was just so ingenuine. It was, it wasn't real and stuff. Were you taught whether like purposely or, or not that there were feelings that were good and there were feelings that were bad and there, there was ways to be okay. And there were ways that were like, cause you just use the word negative. And for me now, like with all the work I do, I know that there's every emotion is a teacher and every emotion there's something to, you know, like to figure out, or there's something that they're stuck. But I remember forever feeling like, well, I don't want to have that feeling because that's ba a bad feeling or I don't want to. And I had a huge problem feeling like a burden. I did not want to burden anyone with what anything I was going through. So was that all part of your child also where you maybe developed skills, but at that point they weren't the right skills, but you were still coming up like your with your own coping strategies at that age that were the best for you at that time? Yeah, definitely. You know, it, when you brought up your dad's feelings about your illness, I know that my parents had uh, guilt surrounding my diagnosis, even though it wasn't anything that anybody did. I mean, things just happen. But they were both very concerned about me identifying as somebody who was sick. And in, in their head, um, that, that was something you didn't want to be. And so don't talk too much about your diagnosis. I mean, I had extended family, didn't know anything was going on until I was like in my 20s. And, you know, just like, don't talk to people about it. Don't talk with us about it because, I don't know, I suppose it was scary to them and maybe talking about it made it more real. I'm not really sure. It's not a conversation we ever really got to have. And both of my parents have passed away. But that was definitely, anything in that realm was kind of, off limits, where now I think that it can be really healthy and to have that as part of your identity. I'm a lot of different things. And one of those things is that I uh, have a disability and I'm sick. It's just a fact. It's part of who I am. And I've uh, embraced that. But that was definitely something taboo growing up. And I didn't want to rock the boat too much when things were already volatile at home. And so just trying to be the peacemaker. Um, you said, have a smile on your face. And yeah. I'm really hearing a theme of just acknowledgement of what is in the building of your resilience, you know, where you've transformed as an adult into, you know, the powerhouse that Katie, Katie met at the conference that day is through like, you know, that, that learning to acknowledge your, your feelings and like, to just be able to take a day and be like, this sucks. And I'm not going to pretend that it doesn't. And anyone who asks, I'm going to be like, and it sucks, you know, and, and to to just feel those feelings of then allows you the space to move forward again to the next thing. And it doesn't mean that you live there forever. I'm not hearing that you're like, and I'm going to live in this day forever if everything is terrible, but like just the acknowledgement is the thing that then creates freedom to move forward. But then also I hear that again in what you just described of like, it was almost impossible for you to acknowledge any of it when the, you know, having a diagnosis for anything wasn't something to talk about. And now there is, you know, you're discovering like community and like support and life and breath and just saying like, yeah, I have this, you know, diagnosis and I'm not the only person in the world who has it. And so here are the things that are unique about my life and there's no judgment on it. Like what I'm hearing is like that through acknowledging and connecting with other people, 
and, and being able to just own that piece of your identity, it doesn't run you anymore. You know, like it just, it becomes a vehicle for moving forward, for getting support. Like you, you get it back. It's yours. And so do you mind, and it's, it's totally okay with you if you don't want to, but like, can, do you mind sharing with our audience? Like what are some of the health conditions that you deal with? Because maybe some of our listeners also have some of similar things and yeah, I have, um, Marfan syndrome, which is a genetic connective tissue disorder that affects the aorta, the lungs, the eyes, the skin, bones, and nervous system. And I was diagnosed with that when I was eight and I've had uh, 11 different surgeries most of which are tied to, to that diagnosis. I also have endometriosis and adenomyosis and fibromyalgia. So chronic pain has kind of been a, a theme for a while, you know, between all of those different uh, diagnoses and then anxiety and depression. What's crazy is like knowing, seeing who you are and how you show up. So I know her and I know some of the communities that she's part of. And I don't know if you are on like, like a legit leader of all of them or not. But I know that every single person that I've met in that community, the moment they have a problem, the moment they know that they have a surgery coming up, the moment they have a question, if they see something that like triggered them on Instagram, like literally it could be anything, not just like a, a medical thing. Every one of them will say like, well, did you reach out to Maya? Like, did you reach out to Maya? She's just this voice. And, and it's incredible to know that like what you had to go through where it was so, you know, like, either shameful or whatever. Like I, I was told not to tell anyone about what I was had because my parents thought it would limit my job opportunities. And they didn't know that it meant to me that I had something shameful and that I had to hide and that it wasn't okay to be me. And if someone knew I was sick, they'd be like, oh, we'll pray for you to get better. So that I was something that needed to be fixed, you know, like, and that's how I saw it. And to see that you, I mean, like thousands, I've seen thousands of people go up to Maya and and reach out to her online in person before COVID and, and just go to you for this like advice and this freedom. And it's funny because it's not that you're then giving the illness power that it's like, okay, before I denied it. And now that's all I'm about. Cause there are some people that you and I know who then become consumed with being the illness and not knowing that they're, that's just a part of them. Like today is Tuesday. I have you know, endometriosis, I have like those, that's just something, but that's not who I am. That's not my heart and my soul and my passions and my purpose and stuff. So it's just wild to hear like the differences. I'm curious if any of that, having that upbringing, the way that you probably had to show up in your house with your father and stuff, when you met your husband, was it easy to let like um, a male figure in? Was it easy to like then share yourself with someone so authentically? How did, how did that relationship start from you know, going from like a hiding spot to something that's so vulnerable. It was not easy. And, you know, it created a little bit of conflict at first. We had been together probably about nine months and I had a doctor's appointment and I needed somebody to drive me because I was going to be sedated. And so he offered to, uh, to take me to the appointment and then went in with me to talk with the doctors to take notes because I was still a little, you know how you get loopy after sedative. And I had been really, um, I don't know if standoffish is exactly the word, but I hadn't wanted to talk with him about all of this because I'd had people leave in the past, you know, when they found out that something was going on and I wanted to just be able to handle it myself. Right. Cause like, that's what I'm supposed to do. And it ended up being a really significant appointment that got the ball rolling on genetic testing and conversations about 
life expectancy and all sorts of things that this doctor uh, threw at me. And I got home and thought, well, that is the end of that relationship. <laughs> it's been a fun nine months. And his response, like I think it was the next day was, well, I, I went home and I did some reading and, you know, so there's some stuff for us to look into, but, you know, I think we can totally handle this. And he was using we, and that is what kind of made me feel like, okay, I can be a little bit more vulnerable here because he's not going to immediately, you know, peace out. And we got married young. I think I was 22, but we dealt with, you know, my health issues, his health issues that ended up coming up, my dad and him passing away and um, my mom getting cancer. And so there were a lot of things that got thrown in us in a little bit of, in a short amount of time, but seeing how he handled that made it easier to have uh, other conversations with him and allowed the relationship to be grow more authentically. I like that. We, where it's not like you, you can handle it. We can handle it. It's a teammate right there. I know. I was like, well, where was that man when I was 22? Cause that's not who I was with. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> no, you weren't. I know you're a 22 year old guy. So I have a question and, and knowing what you like, knowing what it feels like to be someone who's sick, knowing what it felt like and all the, you know, like childhood and everything, like uh, becoming, have, finding a lover, finding a partner, like doing all of that. You guys decided to have a family and start having a family. And when did you find out that your son, I don't know how close they are in age. I love them to death, but I don't know how close they are in age, that they had a medical condition and stuff. And did that raise any concerns for you or any like PTSD from the past or anything like that? Because that would be, I, I feel like that's a place of resiliency where you people go into paralysis as if that past trauma shows up again. Um, and so I'm just curious if that did show up and how you dealt with that. It did. Um, we had a lot of conversations before trying to get pregnant about the fact that, you know, with Marfan, it's a 50-50 chance of passing it on. And, you know, I knew how I felt about it, but I needed to know how Mark felt about it. And I was really worried about feeling like a burden because I had felt like a burden in the past. I mean, just growing up and people in our lives definitely had opinions about, you know, us potentially having a, a child who was sick. And I felt really guilty and, you know, that I, that I wouldn't be able to be the type of parent that, you know, I could see on TV or see other people with this unlimited energy and physical strength and able to, you know, do all this stuff. Cause I knew that that wasn't going to be able to be me. And every mom listening to the podcast laughs, right? <laughs> like that fairy tale doesn't exist anywhere. Continue. Sorry. I just had to interject with that. <laughs> it exists in my head, right? <laughs> and it's the loudest in our head. So yeah. And he said, there's no perfect parent, but you can have perfect love and we will love this kid, no matter what, and that that's the best thing that you can give and that you deserve the same opportunities for happiness that healthy people deserve. And so that was really profound for me. Like your husband said that? Yeah. That I could give myself the permission to, to, that it was okay to want to be a mom and that I could 
give my kids the knowledge every day that they are loved, which is different from how I grew up. And so that I could then parent differently than how I was parented. With our oldest, he's autistic. We found out his diagnosis. The boys are 23 months apart. And so I was three months pregnant with with my second when we got Miles' diagnosis. And so that was really scary. I worried about splitting my time and energy and resources. Um, And then we found out that Julian had Marfan. I mean, like literally it was the first thing that I said when they held him up in the operating room. I looked over at Mark and I said, look at those fingers. We've got a Marf baby. And uh, two weeks later we had the blood work. And so then I thought, okay, now I've got two kids with two different sets of of significant needs. (laughs) How am I going to balance that? And did I make a mistake? Was I unfair to them? You know, coming back to that, I I don't have this perfect body and the the perfect strength and everything. Um, How am I going to be able to manage that? So it was a time of a lot of stress. And it's when I started to write and uh, into blog. And I, that helped me get through it. Again, it's like the connecting and the outreach and just acknowledging how things are. I'm, you're just out there. I think there's so much power in, in connecting with other people. Even when your stories are different, finding the similarities and being able to be real and having, you know, having a friend or a community where you can just let it out is so helpful. And Having other people do that and me being able to learn from them has been invaluable. So you go from wondering if you're going to have enough energy to be a parent to having two biological children of your own, both with their own unique diagnoses. And then you're like, we should adopt. <laughs> yeah. How did you, how did you get to that decision? Yeah, tell me more. I just, I always knew that I wanted a lot of kids. I wasn't sure that I would like being a stay-at-home mom, and then I did. So we, I don't know, it just felt like somebody was missing, and we talked about it and felt like adoption was the way to go, Um, and the process was so emotionally difficult, and it was over two years uh, while we were waiting to, to find Ruby. And during that time, my husband was like, we definitely should do this again. <laughs> I, I know him, but I love this. I didn't know all this about him. I'm like, wow, what a, just what a, a rock. What a partner. We have not had a third child. And you were telling me that you think we should have a fourth. He's like, yeah, definitely. I was not sure what I thought about him in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, we just, you just roll with it. For your adoption, because I know, um, so I have an endometriosis and I have a, a bunch of infertility stuff. And one of the things that people always said right away after like my ectopic, my molar practice, everything was like, well, you should just adopt. You should just adopt. And how you just said, like, it was emotionally, first of all, it's, it can be insanely expensive. I don't know what process you did, but my neighbors here did it. And they spent, they spent 74,000 to get their baby, which, you know, I'm not saying that there's a price that's worth having your child or not, but it's just, I don't think people think that when they say it. And I also don't think people realize what you go through to bring them home, like what you go through to get that child that's meant to be yours and meant to be your family to get them back home. So with all of that, like, I don't, I'm just curious, um, 
do you do, were you part of like the matching of who you got or was it just like a phone call and that there was some, you know, that, that we have, that we have, you know, Ruby, we have whoever's supposed to be in your home. How did that go? And then what do you like, how did you bring them in? And did that at all cause conflict where you got to be the parent you always knew you were capable of being for your children to teach them? Because I'm sure when someone new is coming to the house, there's uncertainty, you know, for your boys and like something new or what if something else happens or what if they come in with, you know, issues and stuff. So how did you just take all of that on? I always say there is no just in adoption because it is the phrase people use, well, just adopt, but there's no just because in order to adopt, you have to be completely okay with the fact that you are not your child's only parents. Whether you have any kind of relationship going forward with their um, birth parents, whether you know anything about them, they exist and they are part of your child's story and they are going to come up in some way. And so you have to be confident in who you are and your your parenting to know that you are not um, the only one. And I think with adoption, especially we have a, uh, one of our children is a different ethnicity than we are. And so with transracial adoption, it was really embracing that love is not enough. I needed to bring in resources, create a community that I cannot be every single thing that my child needs, um, which I hadn't, I mean, I think it's true for our biological kids too, but I had never really thought about it that way. In terms of the process for Ruby, for our third child, we went with an agency and 15 months in found out that the agency, like they, they emailed us that they were closing like immediately um, and that they hadn't shown our profile or anything to anybody in the 15 months that we had been waiting. And it was this huge blow. Like we thought things had been happening that, you know, weren't. And now I needed to find somewhere to, to transfer our home study to. And in a weekend, I called every agency in the state of Ohio and like put together a spreadsheet. And I thought, I can just type A myself through this. You know, we we picked an agency and then I was like, well, we can actually work with multiple agencies at once. So I'm going to share our home city with other places. and I'm going to look at stuff online and, you know, we're just going to put ourselves out there. And it made me so depressed. I don't think I've ever been more depressed because I wanted, I thought I could completely control the process and you really can't like, it's going to happen when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen. And, you know, we had two different situations where we were matched and then for different reasons, the child didn't come home with us, which in adoptive parent language is called a failed adoption, but I wouldn't call it that because they're with you know, where they need to be. They're with their their birth parent or they're with another family. And so it's a failure for me, but not a failure for the child. But that was really hard. And so ultimately we got a phone call at 5 p.m. on a Monday when we had loaded up the boys in the car for T-ball practice, letting us know that we had a daughter at the other end of the state if we were ready to come get her, um, which was not at all how I had envisioned it working out. And the boys, I think, mean, so that we were like thrust into, hi, here's, you know, six hours later, here's your kid. And so there was a learning curve adjusting to, to her needs. And then, like you said, kind of melding 
things together. Um, but the boys, we kept kept abreast of the process the whole time. So even though they were young, we had talked about it. When we had been matched before, they called that baby their, their maybe baby. Because maybe the baby's going to come home to our house and maybe they're not. But we're preparing for them. Um, so they were really excited to have this new person in our family and get to know them. So not that it was like a seamless process because it wasn't, but no, but I, I love, I mean, and that's something that you've said through all of it is like therapy, which is talking about it. Like you knew the power of having conversation and it doesn't mean that the conversation has to, I think what people think is I'm not going to have the conversation unless I'm an expert in this and unless I can solve it. I think that's where people go wrong is like, well, I'm not going to speak up unless I can make this person thing better where it's like, if I can just hold the space for you to tell me how you're feeling and I can, uh, like, you know, validate what you're going through or just, just being there for someone. I think just having a conversation, you're seeing your, so Laura, her boys do videos at conference every year with me and Andy and they're hysterical. They'll like, they totally take over. Andy at first was like, well, tell us what to do. And then she sat back and she's like, yo, those two have a vision. Like they are directors and they need to be in LA and they, they do like accents and they had so much character. They're so funny, but to just, they are so articulate. You guys were nowhere nearby. Not that you just abandoned your children with me and Andy were trustworthy, but like you guys weren't there and they hold their own and they're so confident and they're so empowered and they're, they're younger. A lot of people don't have a voice at that age. You know, a lot of people depend on their parents still to kind of do that and to see what you've created in them and to see like that, you know, it's like going through life, seeing how you, the conversation, and I think it's just so important to stress that it's not about having the answers. It's about not being afraid to share whatever you're experiencing. Definitely. And, and trying to create a community where you can all share with each other um, and then giving your kids the tools to be able to, to do that themselves. So when did you get the fourth? The fourth? Um, Eliza came to us like that. I was three days out of my hysterectomy when I got an email and then um, we met her parents a few weeks later, like I could barely walk. <laughs> um, and then she was born a month after that. So our home city wasn't finished when we initially got paired with her. And that was separate from an agency. It was over Facebook and it just, it happened, uh, really fast. And I was not expecting it at all um, because of how long and uh, curvy the road was to find Ruby. Um, so it was very different with Eliza. You've spoken a bit about how, you know, there was a, there was a huge learning curve for you from how you were raised through to today and that you made a commitment that, that this was not going to be so for your children. And interestingly enough, like you have, you know, a Marfan child and a child with you know, autism and two children coming through, uh, to you through adoption with, you know, that all of the emotions, like you said, and like that those, these other parents in their lives, like there's, it's nothing is straightforward, I guess, about, about how they are in the world. And yet they have a mom who is ready to share and build community. So do you see that reflected in them and who they are and how they're experiencing life being, you know, in, in their version of having, you know, a diagnosis or, or being a little bit different? I think so. Julian, my son with, with Marfan will tell you, my mom was 14 when she started giving talks and I started when I was seven. I'm an advocate too. 
so he he definitely like has no issue speaking out. <laughs> Miles is a little more shy, but I talk with the boys about why I share my stories and why we would let them share theirs. They also know that I don't share anything about their story without their you know permission first. Um, but we get involved with advocacy things as a family. And so it's a value that that they have and they uh, are very open talking about things. And their therapist asked me if I was a therapist because of the way that they talk. Like, no, I'm not. I just kind of love therapy. <laughs> now there's a compliment. I love therapy too. I I think everybody I think our theme on this podcast is everybody needs a therapist. Um, <laughs> it's just it is such a clutch tool for me in my resiliency toolbox is to know that I that I have someone that I can talk to. Yeah, I think everyone should go because I think it, we need to normalize talking about the feelings and stuff. But something that's come up before in one of our episodes that we recorded was how how the system in America, because obviously I don't know other ones, doesn't put you into therapy when you get diagnosed with something, when you get diagnosed with a mental health, a chronic illness, anything like that blows my mind because then here you are with this news. You see that your parents in my situation, I saw that my parents were like devastated by it. So then I don't want to hurt them. So I'm not going to talk about anything I'm really going through because I hate seeing them hurt. And then you like, and it's just, and it's, it's like the ripple effect going the wrong way. It's all out of love. Like my parents aren't telling, you know, talking about it because they don't want me to feel bad about it. And then I'm not telling them. And it's this whole thing. And I'm like, if we could just, if it just, you got it and you got to sit and just say like, this isn't fair, like, or, or they made it mandatory to do 12. So, you know, like just something it's such, it is so important because until I talk about something, it has complete control over me and my body reacts. I'll get shingles if I hold something inside or, you know, like my body is too connected <laughs> to me, not using my voice because it just shuts down. Something else will go wrong. And it's, and I'm just, and it's funny because my, I don't have, I'm loved deeply. Laura knows my family and they're proud of everything I do, but they don't, they would never make the choices I do to share. Cause that's not like they, they I get messages, text messages from my sister. Like, why did you share that? Take that down. Take that off Facebook. Why would you do that? And it's, and it is, it's everyone's own comfort. But for me, it is healing. And for me, the messages you get back from people thanking you, the messages that you get from like people telling you that it's, you know, the the thing that saved them or the thing that pushed you, watching you be what you are for all the conference of the Marfan conference and for all connective tissue disorders. Like you are, she, she is like Yoda for these people. They all, I never thought I would make a Star Wars reference. It's been a long few days with that Mandalorian episode, but you are. And it's, I mean, it just, it's remarkable because it's not, you didn't have to solve anything. You didn't have to get well. You didn't have to get better. You didn't have to fix your kids. There was nothing wrong with them. They're exactly who they're supposed to be. And it's incredible. And you've let them know that. And I think that's what we have missing is that we never, there's something consciously or subconsciously where we don't feel like we're enough because of something else. And you've had this family of four kids that you fought like hell for, and they all will grow up knowing that they're perfect, exactly how they are. And I think that's just incredible. If there was anything, um, just to honor time and stuff, if there was anything that you could tell Laura and I and all the listeners, like, do this tomorrow, and that would help support your mission or help support your belief and journey and resiliency or what that would look like, uh, what would you have us do tomorrow? Or what would you have us contemplate? Or If you are considering therapy, then to, to 
look into it and to realize that there are lots of different types of therapy and therapists. And it's important to find one that meshes with your personality and the way that you see things and know that it may take a little while to find the right person or the right program, but there are resources available out there to help you. Thank you so much. Oh, Katie, I think we're ready to play a game. We are ready to play a game. Okay, so this game, Maya, uh, you you know me and Andy, so you know that uh, we're the duo of power of play. I am going to just name a color. You're going to find something with that color and bring it back. There's no other rule. There's no, like, it doesn't have to do anything. And you're going to just bring it back. The catch is you only have 30 seconds to do it. I'm going to name, actually, the color rainbow. Laura, you share what you got first. So my thing that is a rainbow is um, I have a a Boston uh, puzzle and it is all of the shoes that were picked up from the finish line of the Boston Marathon in the year of the bombing formed into a heart uh, in the middle. It says we will finish the race. So of course, like the shoes are all different colors. Um, and then the ones creating the heart are like kind of pink or red colored, but then there's like all kind of rainbow colors all around the outside of it. And for a while, for a long time, this was on display at the, um, the library, the Boston public library, which is right at the finish line where the bombing happened. And I was, um, it's super meaningful to me because I was there that day. I was in the race as a running coach that day. So I was at mile 21 with, uh, the teammates of our bars who were the slower runners. Um, and, uh, and I coached for a charity team. And then the following year I registered as a participant, as a runner and I finished, and I did finish the race. So, um, lots of big feelings and emotions that go along with that uh, that event and that poster hangs in my office, right in my sight line where I can look at it all the time. That's awesome. Maya, what do you have? It is my girl's button art game. So there's lots of bright colors of different, uh, things. And you put the the button in to match the color to make the animal. All right. I'll show you mine. So mine is, and I just broke it as I grabbed it, but I have it up. It's up on the wall at all times all year. I bought it for Rebel's birthday two years ago. And then it just became um, above the kitchen table. Most people have like a pretty picture or something normal. And it says, let's, so it's all different colors. And it says, let's get weird. (laughs) (laughs) And Rebel's so weird. So we had it for his birthday up on that wall in that spot. And then we were like, let's just keep it. That's like, that's us. That's perfect for our kitchen. So we had it up. And now I have it down, but I'm not getting rid of it, even though I'll tape the L back on because I just broke the L off. But I love it. And so I, I'm keeping it and it's coming with me. And I'm going to hang it on tough days across the minivan. Maya, can you tell the audience where can they find you on the Internet if they wanted to connect with you? Or do you have a cause or where would you like people to go? I am on Twitter. I'm Marf Mom, M-A-R-F-M-O-M. Or they can find me on Facebook at uh, the page Musings of a Marfan Mom. So it is time for our final segment. Get out of here. And the rules are simple. Um, we're all of us going to get out of here on this podcast. It's time for us to go. But where we're going to today is an imaginary make-believe land. It could be from a, your favorite book, TV show, movie, 
um, musing, sketch in a sketchbook, but it just cannot be a place that exists in reality. It could be from a song. I don't know. But uh, we're all getting out of here somewhere. So I'm going to start with Katie today. Katie, where are you getting out of here to? I, you know, I know I've used it before, but it's it's a little bit of a different spot. It's going to be Punky Brewster again, <laughs> but it's her treehouse because I actually I actually have been Googling um, now knowing I'll have more space. <laughs> I don't have a home, but I've been Googling how to make an epic treehouse again. So I Googled the plans that she had for hers. And I've been since I was in Colorado last week, I've been like trying to figure out what she had because my dad built one to match hers when I was a kid. So, you know, sometimes you're supposed to do things a certain way in life. And I'm going to so I'm just working on this treehouse. So it's Punky Brewster, but it's not like just her life with Margot and Alan and everyone and Cherry. It's I'm like it's her in the treehouse just doing her own thing. You guys are welcome to come, but that's where I'm going to be. Maya, where are you going to get out of here to? Well, true to my introduction, I'm an Outlander fan. So I will get out of here to Fraser's Ridge um, up in the the Smoky Mountains of North Carolina. Today, I'm going to get out of here to, there was, um, I was editing a, a, a document for work. This is such a weird beginning to a make-believe place. But on the document, there was a picture of a meadow with that had like, purple flowers and like big mountains and blue skies. And it just looked like fresh, crisp air and warm sunshine. And sitting here in the cold, dark, snowy New England, I, I immediately messaged my, all of my coworkers. And I was like, Hey, can we just have our next team meeting in that picture? I would like to go to the world of that picture where we're all in person, where there's no pandemic and there's a beautiful view. And I can see all of your faces like in real life and like, let's have a meeting in the picture. So uh, this week I'm going to that picture. (laughs) That's where I'm going. (laughs) I'm going to be like Mary Poppins in the chalk drawings. Poof. I wasn't expecting that from you at all because you watch so much TV stuff. You always know TV places or books or I wasn't expecting. I've been watching Lovecraft Country and that is not a place I want to get out of here to. (laughs) (laughs) It is terrifying. I mean, I know the real world is also terrifying and that's the whole point of the show. But like, dang, that is a scary show. So I'm not getting out of here to any of the places on TV these days. I'm getting out of here to that very nice picture in the in the document at work that's where i'm going <laughs> awesome well maya thank you so much for joining us and for just talking stuff i am um, is your husband open to ever doing interviews i will have to ask him i would be so curious i've always wanted and my parents won't do it and um and my partners from the past won't do it also but i've always wanted to interview someone who was like made the choice knowingly to get not that there's something wrong with us, obviously, like we said, but made the choice knowing that like, okay, this isn't going to be what everyone else or people might criticize us. Like you said, you know, when you plan to have a family, everyone gives your their two cents suddenly, even though you don't need it or ask for it. Um, so if he is open, I would love to just talk to him about what it's like and it, that the resiliency to have to to step up and support someone who might like just be sheltered from, you know, like I push back obviously from receiving it from just the way at what I had gone through to try to protect people and save people. So if he is open, let us know. Cause I think that would be really fascinating to hear, especially as someone who has struggled with letting people in for that. Yeah. I'll definitely ask him. Cool. Thank you so much, Maya. Thank you. Goodbye everybody. Goodbye everybody. 
Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave us that sweet five-star review. It helps people find us and makes our hearts ever so happy. You can follow me, Laura Ingalls, at LJ Ingalls on Instagram and Twitter. And me, Katie Lasky, at Katie Love Bomb on Instagram. Or follow the pod at Rad Resilient Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And check us out on the web at RadicalResiliencePodcast.com. However you find us out there in this virtual world, know that we are so glad you're here. We love you and we'll see you next week.